Welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as our Bible teacher explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. Also, you can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, www.fbcaa.org. You can watch our services at fbcaa.org live or on YouTube. We thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as we open God's Word. We'll continue this morning in the book of Acts. I invite you to follow along as I read in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we find really the birth of the church. We find the apostles uh, speaking in tongues, and uh, which we'll make a note about in just a moment. And then we see the response of the people uh, to the evangelistic sermon, really, that Peter preaches uh, in this setting. But beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That is, the apostles... And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. I just want to stop and make a note here that the tongues that they were speaking in were actual literal languages that uh, they could understand. These weren't just you know, utterances of, of noise that no one could understand. These were actual languages that were to be understood. Verse 7, Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues and the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said they are full of new wine. Verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
just want to make a note here. I think what Peter's doing is not saying that this is the actual fulfillment of this prophecy, but it's a similar kind of thing happening here as what will happen in the last day. And so he's drawing out an analogy between Joel's words, the prophet Joel, and what they are experiencing here in Acts chapter 2. Verse 22 then, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in my hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence." Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It shows the conviction of the heart taking place, the responding to the words. And verse 37, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. 
Good morning again. Let's open our Bibles to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And that is indeed what it is. It is the book that explains the beginnings of things, of all things, in fact. We don't have much of an introduction in the notes today for you, but we're going to introduce by just reminding ourselves where we've been. If you're new to the series, we started right in the beginning of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we saw how God created all things that exist, whether in heaven above, on earth, or under the earth, in the sea, in the sky, and all that is, and did that within the space of six days. We saw about the entrance of sin into the world that brought forth death as well. That's the explanation as to why people die. That's very clear in Scripture. Sin entered the world and death through sin. It wasn't the reverse like the secular scientists teach us today, that there was death always from millennia and eons and billions of years past. That's not true. Uh, the only way that death came in was because of sin. And uh, we then looked at a, a kind of the early history of humanity uh, from uh, Cain and Abel, the first murder, uh, forward into the uh, really the degradation of the whole society across the face of the earth in the first really millennia and a half or a little bit more, and how God judged the world with a flood <clears throat> that covered the whole earth. I was... I was just looking at a uh, picture, a background picture that I had on my computer screen the other day, just to illustrate, and it's of the Grand Canyon, looking from a distance kind of, and you see the one um, ridge, I guess I'll call it, the one side of the canyon is entirely flat, and all the layers are entirely flat. And uh, the, the story is that the, you know, the Colorado River cut out the Grand Canyon, well, stop and think to yourself, what, what left the layers there in perfect orderly flatness for that river to cut out? Now, I don't believe that that river did that because that's too big, but let's suppose that it did. What left those layers there? Well, it's pretty obvious that it's a, a settling event from a flood, that those layers settled in perfect uh, harmony and perfect flatness level layers because there was a flood that happened. And that's, in fact, what those layers come from. Well, that's interesting. And so God used that to judge the world. He promised that he would never do that again, however, and that's the rainbow promise, the Noahic covenant. That's in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And we looked at the table of nations in chapters 10 and 11, kind of the spread of humanity after Noah and his family left the ark. And uh, that explained, <clears throat> excuse me, the beginning of uh, human culture and language, uh, how God set kind of the groups of people out in different parts of the world, and uh, we get the idea of language, culture, um, national borders, things of that nature from that time, way back in Genesis 10 and 11. Around uh, 2100 B.C. or so, 2200 perhaps, 2175 something, don't quote me on that date, but uh, we have Abraham come onto the scene, and God called Abraham out of a pagan worship center in Ur of the Chaldees to become the first Hebrew, and that is the genesis of the Jewish nation. Now, God 
kind of narrows down from the very beginning of you know, looking at the world as a whole right down to this one man and his offspring because something very significant was going to happen through them. Actually, some things very significant were going to happen through them. Uh, from them comes the oracles of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 9 and 10 that uh, through them God sent the word of God. In fact, uh, all or almost all, seems like all of the authors of Scripture were Jewish people. So we have the revelation from God. We also have the salvation from God. So that was why he narrows down onto the Jewish nation, not that nobody else had anything going on or there was no significance to their lives or anything like that. It's just you can't put all of world history in a book this size, right? So he focused on the uh, important parts that he wanted us to understand. We have to learn the rest of world history from other sources, and some of it, of course, has been lost to us. So he focuses in then on Abraham and uh, the narrative surrounding him and Lot as they move from Ur of the Chaldees to Haran to the Promised Land, Canaan as we know it, or Palestine as it's called today, Israel, and uh, their movements around that area. Some of the problems that they had in chapters uh, 13 and 14, and uh, then God's work with them, excuse me, as he made his covenant promise with the people, the, with Abraham and, and after him, the people of Israel, and after them, really, with the whole Gentile world. The reason that the church exists can trace its way all the way back through Christ, all the way back through Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, to when God promised that he would bless all of the families of the earth through Abraham. That blessing comes to us through Jesus Christ. And so, that's why we have this kind of background information. Without this, you know, you think, well, Jesus came on the scene and he lived the perfect life and he died for our sins and he rose. But where did all that come from? There was a, there was a whole organic beginning that God used over thousands of years to bring all of this about so that we could enjoy the new revelation that we've received in the New Testament and the blessings of salvation, and all of the Word of God. So we come up through um, chapters 15, and we see in 16, part of, part of the Abrahamic covenant was God promised that, Abraham, you're going to have a seed, you're going to have a, an offspring, a descendancy, and you're going to be a huge nation, and that wasn't happening, and Abraham was getting old, and Sarah was getting old, and they said, well, we've got to really help God out here, so we're going to give a, make a, a kind of a surrogate relationship with this Hagar, and we're going to uh, achieve having a son through her. Well, that was a fleshly plan. That was not God's plan. And so they, but they went ahead and had done that. And so now they have Hagar and Ishmael. That's in chapter 16. Uh, God uh, gives them a sign for this Abrahamic covenant. That's the sign of circumcision. And then <clears throat> promises a couple of times, chapter 17 and 18, again, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Isaac. And, of course, Abraham laughed at that, and Sarah laughed at that. I mean, who wouldn't laugh at 190 years old? You would think that's impossible. But the, the thing is, how, you've got to be careful. <laughs> Laughing at what God says is a different matter 
than laughing at you know, your friends who say, oh yeah, you'll be able to have kids. They don't know anything, but God arranged all of this. So, um, And then there was the kind of dirty <clears throat> interlude here with, again, more sin popping into uh, our view in chapters 18 and 19 about Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment of those cities and the other cities that were in the plain like to them. <clears throat> we carry on with Abraham moving about again and interacting with one of the Philistine kings uh, from Gerar named Abimelech, or titled Abimelech. And uh, we went through all of that last week. That brings us up to chapter 21. So if you'd open your Bibles to Genesis 21, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we'll be glad to give you one today after you leave, okay? The Bible is the most important book that's ever been written, published, printed, translated, taught, or anything like that. And uh, we're very... That's why we're involved with Bibles International, because we want to make sure that every people group in their language has a copy of God's Word, and uh, we're very pleased to be involved in a little part of that work. We see Isaac's birth now. So the son who was promised comes into the family in chapter 21, and let me read verses 1 to 8. God's promise comes to fruition here. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Remember, God had visited them the prior year and said, you know, according to the time of life, nine months, 10, 11, 12, however long, just, you know, by this time next year, you're going to have a child. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, Does your Bible have a little footnote there? You'll get a chuckle out of the name, pun intended. I got one brother back there who understood what I was saying. Thank you. (laughs) All right, verse 4. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So we get a little bit of a kind of unadorned account of Isaac's birth, his circumcision, and and then his his weaning in verse 8. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a special or a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly how old he was when he was weaned, but we saw from 1 Samuel chapter 1 that another little boy was born to a family, and uh, after some years he was weaned from his mother's milk and allowed to then begin uh, going down to the temple or tabernacle at that time and ministering with Eli the priest. Even though the account is fairly simple in its presentation, the wonderful and miraculous nature of the situation was God kept his word. He visited Sarah as he had said, and he did for Sarah as he had spoken. That's God for you. He always does what he says, and if he says he's going to visit, he visits. The miraculous part of this is that she could, once again, have a baby. Actually, not again, just once. The wonderful part is that God kept his word. So you have kind of a You know, just an amazing situation altogether. 
That's how it always is with the God of the Bible. The only true God, the only being outside of the created realm, the only one who has power to implement his promises, and the only one with wisdom to give those promises in the first place. He also did it at the time that he had set before. He didn't wait longer, he didn't come sooner, but just at the right time within that year as he promised. God keeps his word always, dear friends, whether that word is for good or ill, reward or retribution, blessing or cursing, God keeps his word. Whether he, whether he makes a big promise or a small promise, whatever he says, he keeps. In this case, the promise was kept, uh, and it was rather small in one sense, you know, about as small as little Clara is here today, right? But in another sense, it was quite large for the nation of Israel has impacted the history of the world in disproportionate measure, has it not? Through Abraham and now through his son Isaac, especially since the Messiah arose from Israel to bring salvation to the world. Jesus was able to say to the woman at the well in John 4, salvation comes from the Jewish people. That's why we appreciate the Jewish people and certainly don't put them down. Anti-Semitism is inexcusable and unacceptable in our sight. Now, uh, what else do I have in my notes here for you? So the promises of God, though, you know, this is interesting. I was just thinking about this. This one promise that you're going to have a child was kind of the beginning of a whole network of promises and work of God that he was doing. And if you think about it, who but God could so wisely fit together all of the puzzle pieces of everything that would happen over thousands of years of world history to bring you here to this day, to know Jesus, to have him come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of that. I mean, it just blows your mind to think of the, the fabric, every thread that God has wo- weaved together in these promises and his work. And uh, all of this stands or falls on the grand wisdom and power of God. And of course, it stands. It doesn't fall, but it's all on his grand wisdom and power. Now, Abraham carried out the required circumcision that God had told him to do in chapter 17, which was a sign for the Abrahamic covenant. And, you know, God did what he said he was going to do, and Abraham did what he was responsible to do. So all that's good. The naming of the son, though, here is interesting because they named him Isaac, which you know, doesn't come across to us in English in a, a plain way, but it's from the verb for laughter. <clears throat> God instructed him to name the boy Isaac, Yitzhak, in 17, 19, and 21, uh, two chapters or se- several chapters actually back, to remind Abraham of his initial reaction to God's promise, I think. This reminder served for decades of the remainder of his life as a call to faith in the promises of God and forever to the nation of Israel. It's a reminder of the same promises of God. Every time they say our forefathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they would remember that his name derives from laughter. And it was because both Abraham and Sarah laughed at the promise of God. The name Isaac is also this way a warning 
against the faithless response to God's word. So on the negative side, I'll say, or on the sobering side, maybe is the best way to say it. You may be stuck with what you laugh about for a long time. Uh, You might laugh at God's word, but the psalmist says that God will have the last laugh. Let me share with you just a couple of verses that remind us of that. Psalm 2. Yes, that's right, brother, the kings of the earth. It says they, they want to break God's bonds in pieces. They don't want to be restrained by the moral demands of our God. They counsel against the Lord and want to cast away any restraint. Verse 4 of Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in, his, shall hold them in derision, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And I happened to find another verse like that, which I hadn't remembered in my study here, and it was in Psalm 59, so another good one in this realm of laughter to to get into our minds. Speaking about the enemies of God's people, and David in particular, it says, this is when Saul tried to kill David, and it says in 8, but you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. Now, that's the sobering side of laughing. You don't want to be laughing at God's word, laughing, scorning it. But then there's a section here that speaks about Sarah's response, and she gives us kind of the positive side uh, or the favorable side of the laughter. These verses in verses uh, 6 and 7 remind us that the laughter that was faithless has turned into laughter of joy and thanksgiving at a fulfilled promise. She, quote, could not believe, I say, you know, like she couldn't believe it. But she had to believe it because her eyes were seeing the little child with her. She couldn't believe that she was blessed to bear a child, to nurse a child, to raise a child at her age of about 90 years old with her husband at 100 You can imagine, I bet, especially if you've been a parent, you know, you're in your 40s or 50s or even beyond, and if you and your spouse had another child after getting over the shock of it, wouldn't you just laugh? What is God doing? You know, what in the world? It would just be, it would be a laugh. And that's kind of what she's experiencing here. She said, this is amazing. I can't believe it, what God has done. You shake your head and you just laugh about it, right? They have somebody shaking their head right now. Yeah, a grandma would be holding her own baby. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah. I want you to think on another kind of direction here of the valley of difficulty that we walk through in this life, and the promises that God makes to his children when they complete that journey. They will come out in the glorious light of heaven after walking the valley of tears and the shadow of death. And so after that valley, which for Sarah, she was 90, 
perhaps from a very young, tender age as a girl, she started to desire to have children. At what age do girls start thinking about those things? Very young. Okay, let's just say 10, just for a number to make the math easy. She's 90. For 80 years, she has hoped to have a child. And she came out of that valley of difficulty finally into a, into a delightful place for her. And similar for us, I just make this likeness because I know that some of us have and will go through difficult periods in our life, whether it's you know, life-related stuff like jobs and finances and all that, or if it's old age and disease and, and, and death and, you know, or persecution. You know, we've been appointed to those sorts of things as well. And so no matter how long and how dark that valley may be, look forward as the people of God, if you are, look forward to things, something like this. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. You look forward to that laughter, that singing, that joy that comes out on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death and with our tongue singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. There's some day coming in which your mouth will be filled with laughter, even if your days are difficult right now. Because if you trust in Christ, he has assured you he will usher you into his presence after your life is completed. And there will be no sin, no sorrow, no anything there that will cause tears. They will just be the laughter of joy and thanksgiving and the fulfillment of God's promises. Those bring the good kind of laughter, not the scorn kind of laughter of not believing God's word. Now, in verses 9 through 21, we have a lengthy section about Hagar and Ishmael being pushed out into homelessness. And this is a little bit of a different kind of feeling to it than what we just read in verses 1 through 8. So let's read verse 9 and following. It says, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham. And the, the way the English is written is a little bit abrupt here, but it says she saw him scoffing. He was ridiculing. And this is evidently at the, at the party where they're celebrating the weaning of the child, the celebration, or shortly thereafter, And uh, by this time, do you remember how old Ishmael would be? Probably look at the notes and see that I wrote it in there somewhere. He was 13 when he was circumcised, and that was about a year before this. So he's 14 years old now. And therefore, this is now Sarah says to Abraham, her husband, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. So she's very upset because the, the teenage boy is ridiculing this child, you know, who's maybe three or four or five or six or something, however old. I didn't do the calculation to figure it out, but uh, maybe it was a little bit after that point, 
maybe he was even older than that, I, uh, Ishmael, but teenagers say. And the, and the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing to you, he said. <clears throat> because of the lad or because of the bondwoman, whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took a bread and skin of water, putting it on her shoulder and gave it to the boy, I'm sorry, and gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the wilder, and sorry, and the water and the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. Now listen to this. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of, the, of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness. So now we have kind of, this whole chapter is kind of compressing a number of years just into one section here. And uh, he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. That is not sure, we're not sure exactly where that is, but it may have been in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, which... Uh, probably like west of Riyadh, modern-day Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> and um, it says he dwelt in that wilderness, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So Ishmael scoffed at Isaac and at his mother Sarah some years after Isaac was born. So <clears throat> he was, you know, he had been 14 when the baby was born, so probably... Uh, 17 or something like that now. And this is a harsh, disrespectful attitude towards the young child. Isn't that, it's sadly, sometimes typical of worldly teenagers, isn't it? You know, kind of scoff at things to show disrespect and not really, just a kind of self-centered way about, uh, about themselves. And he did not give due honor to him as the son of God's promise. He must have known all of this, right? Abraham wouldn't have kept him in the dark about it. Mom, Sarah did not take it well. Um, <clears throat> so she has another fit of jealousy and anger at Hagar and her son. Remember, she kind of pushed her out before, and then, and then uh, Hagar came back. So now that Ishmael was old enough, she was angry that he might take some of the inheritance of her son. So whatever all of her motivations were, she was very upset. This is unacceptable behavior. She doesn't want this. But Abraham was extremely displeased about his wife's attitude and probably the strife that it was causing in the home. He just wants it to be like, you know, let's just take it a little easy, not get so uptight about this. Uh, you know, Abraham knows that his son is is Isaac, God considers that his only son because this other one, Ishmael, was uh, you know, begotten out of sin and wasn't the promised son. So he wasn't going to take the whole inheritance or, or whatever. Um, 
you know, despite being chronologically the firstborn. What he probably wanted that is Abraham was peace in his household. Now, that's good thinking. But in verse 12, God assures Abraham that it would be okay to put Hagar and Ishmael out of the clan and have them move to their own place. This solidified the reality that the promised seed was not Ishmael, but Isaac. Now, you know, Hagar is capable. Uh, Ishmael is old enough. He's a young man. Uh, He should be, uh, I guess you could say this is kind of moving out, you know, time for him. God wants to thrust him out so that there's not a continued division within the clan. And there's two other things that God knew that Abraham did not know. First of all, God knew that he would take care of Hagar and Ishmael. And second of all, that this would later be used, this incident would later be used by the Apostle Paul. I know this is getting into it a little bit deeper here, but you remember in Galatians 4 where Paul took this and he made a a kind of an allegory. He didn't interpret this allegorically. He made an allegory. And he said, look, Galatians, you're trying to go back and obey the law to please God. I mean, Paul is very clear. No flesh is justified by keeping the law or doing good works. That is crystal clear in the scriptures. Salvation comes by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. And he's teaching the Galatians this. These are churches that are in modern-day Turkey, you know, 2,000 years plus, 21 or 2,200 years after these events that we're looking at here. And he goes back to this history and says, look, you guys are acting like the son of the bondwoman. You're, you're being cast out. If you go that way, then you've, you know, you've blown the grace of God. You're not in the grace of God. If you think you're going to earn favor with God on your own human effort, Instead, he calls them to be like children of promise. Uh, Isaac, the child of promise, received the promises of God as a gift through Abraham, his father, not by any good thing that he had done. He certainly hadn't earned it at all. And so Paul makes that kind of analogy using this circumstance. We don't have time to go teach all of Galatians there, but Paul does use that in a way that's helpful. And God knew that that was going to come down the pike, so he arranged it things this way. God promised again then to make a nation of Ishmael. Um, Ishmael also was blessed, not because of his own worthiness. I mean, think of it. He was just scoffing at the promised son. Very bad attitude. But because of his association with Abraham, God saw fit to have some kind of corollary benefits, some sanctified benefits or blessings to flow from Abraham to Ishmael just because of that connection. Again, because of God's grace, not because of Abraham's glory or Ishmael's glory or anything like that. So the narrative tells us they were put out. Uh, Abraham gives them some supplies, sends them out of the family compound, and they leave and wander about looking for a place to call home. So let that sink in for a minute, would you? A son and her mother. No husband, dad's not coming, are homeless. That does seem harsh. And then they ran out of water in the desert. 
They thought for sure that they were going to die of dehydration, and so it had become desperate. So mom puts her son, teenage boy, under the shade of a shrub, and she goes away some distance. You've got to stop and just ponder this for a minute, moms, dads, young people, that you're on the verge of, you know, you can't go on. You're just going to sit under the tree, and you're going to shrivel up, and you're going to pass out, and you're going to die. God brought them to the, to the uttermost extremity of a situation, I think perhaps to get them to call out to him. Doesn't God do that sometimes? Put you in the foxhole, because everybody in foxhole says, oh God, you know, like they say, no atheists in there. Perhaps mom was a little a little longer for this life, maybe a little more weathered and able to handle the heat and the dryness, but the young boy was about shriveled up and uh, put him, you know, put distance between herself and him like a bow shot. We don't know how long that was. It could be 200 yards. It could be 500 yards, however long it was, but it was long enough because that she said, I don't want to see him die. I can't do that. She was certain that death was their eventual fate. But then God heard not only her cries, but also that of the lad. And I wonder if he changed his tune a little bit from scoffing to cry out to God. Of course, I, I, I don't know that for sure because he might say to himself, well, the only reason I'm out here is because of that stupid kid, right? <clears throat> I don't know. But he called out despite this mockery and God heard him. God was attentive. God will hear your prayers too if you offer them genuinely. Not fake prayer, but genuine prayer. So God told the mom to go back to Ishmael the child and uphold him, help him, for he would become a great nation. And God again intervened and answered to Hagar's prayer. That was in chapter 16 that happened. Now again, and he showed her a well of water so that they could be sustained. And then the, the narrative just tells about the ensuing years that he became an archer, hunter. Um, and I think probably this seeded kind of the, his, his mindset, his, his um, personality was greatly impacted by this. And he began to fulfill what was said of him back in chapter um, 16, that Ishmael would be a wild man, that his hand would be against everyone, that he's kind of a fiercely independent fellow, that sort of thing. So this probably shaped him into that to fulfill that prophecy. But he did uh, find a spouse uh, from the land of Egypt with his mother's help, and and then they began to uh, have a family. The last section of this chapter where we'll end is just a narrative about Abraham and Abimelech again where there was a dispute among the servants about a well of water. And it says that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. And so they basically asked, let's make an international treaty here that you'll deal well with me and my posterity like I've been, you know, I've dealt well with you. And Abraham said, I will swear you know, to that. I will promise to that um, covenant, that treaty. And then 
we have this incident about the well, which Abraham had dug, but then Abimelech's servants took over. And when Abraham confronted him subsequent to this covenant, Abimelech says, hey, I, I didn't know anything about it, which is not surprising. A fellow has a lot of servants, you know. Sometimes servants do stupid stuff and they don't tell you about it in advance or even afterwards. And so he was the last to know what was going on there. And so they, you know, made things right and all of that. And in verse 24, back, back by the way to verse 24, Abraham says, I will swear to carry out this, this treaty and what this treaty was basically, I think, was an early implementation of the golden rule. It, you know, Abimelech and Phicol say, look, we've treated you well. How about you treat us kindly as well? So they agree to that. You, you know, you treat me well, I'll treat you well. You know, that's, and the golden rule, by the way, is itself a summary of the law of Moses. Did you know that? Love your neighbor as yourself and love God above all. That really summarizes our duty towards God and towards man. Now, I just thought of this too. I thought maybe profited by thinking of this. Does this agreement that Abraham made violate any principle of God? Was it okay for him to be unequally yoked, so to speak, with an unbeliever? I don't think this is an, a, a partnership of that sort. This is not an unequal yoking that's happening between them. Uh, we must all interact with people who have different religious convictions than we do in this world. And some operating agreements are required for that. We have some operating agreements that are implied. Uh, we can go back all the way to our Declaration of Independence and Constitution. They form for us an atmosphere of an implied operating agreement that we have with one another, that we're not going to kill each other for different religious views uh, or hinder one another's speech or assembly or things like that, uh, that we're going to respect each other's you know, rights, as we call them. But you know, that operating agreement is coming under attack today. You have other operating agreements in smaller realms, in your company, your business, uh, you know, with your employer. Not everybody there is a Christian person, but you are under contract with them or whatever. Uh, commerce agreements, international peace agreements are not necessarily unequal yokes. If they promote a quiet and peaceable life, which this treaty did, and allowed Abraham to carry out his religion, his practice, his life peacefully, then that's good. If they lay, however, on the Christian unethical responsibilities or give away liberties that are required for us to live a quiet and peaceable life with all godliness, then we cannot accept those kinds of agreements. Okay? So just kind of a higher level thought here about this treaty business. Can we enter into treaties with unbelievers? Well, yes, we certainly can, especially if they promote those biblical values that we have. So we talked about the dispute about the well and all of that. And uh, we come to the end of the chapter. It says in verse 33, Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, or Beersheba, if you want to call it that, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. This is El Olam, God of eternity. 
And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So I wonder if Abraham uh, offered thanks once again to the covenant-keeping God who protected Abraham from the inhabitants of the land. And he calls on God as El Olam. We see Abraham planting little altars, if you will, and trees in various places throughout the land where he went, and they became worship centers for him and in the future for the people of Israel. God is the God of the future. We can't say that of ourselves. In our human bodies, we're not eternal. We're extraordinarily finite. Our spirit lives on somewhere forever, but our bodies expire with the disease Sometimes in months or years, without food, we expire in weeks, without water in days, without oxygen in minutes. God is the God of eternity. We're temporal by nature. We have to trust and rely upon God for our sustenance. To conclude here, we'll just say this. God promised a son to Abraham and Sarah, and he brought that promise to fruition. He promised... Uh, or protected, rather, Hagar and Ishmael as a corollary benefit of this blessing to Abraham. And God protected Abraham from unbelieving people around him in the promised land. God did all that. He promised and he protected. The question I close with is, what do you suppose God has done and can do for you today? If he's done all that, I'm sure we can think of some things he's done for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you today for allowing us time in the Word. Help us to take it in and to remember your good promises and that you've kept them to your people over the years. And will also to us, if we come to you, you've promised no one that comes to you, you will cast out. Thank you for that. I pray your richest blessing on your people as we ponder those truths this morning. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. What God promises, he protects, jealously guards, and we're grateful for that. Let me remind you also, although many of you weren't here in the early session, uh, you might want to go back and listen to what Brother James Widgen had to teach, and I want to encourage you to uh, keep the forest fires down this week, the forest fires of the tongue, because the tongue can set so much on fire. So listen to his message if you didn't get that illusion. And uh, trust that you'll have a good week this week uh, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, one little extra bonus here I was just thinking. Evaluate yourself and the things that you're doing. While you're doing them, pray to God about them and ask, God, should I be doing this? Should I be doing this this way at this time? And if you can't pray to God like that, Probably better change your course, huh? Pray about it. Remember that. You're doing things this week? Pray about it. I want to ask God to sanctify us that way this week, whether it's our speech or our activity of any sort at all. God bless you all.